Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Sarah Peterson and Katana Zachary. These two have written The Lone Star Speaks, Untold Texas Stories About the JFK Assassination, published by Bancroft Press. Sarah and Katana, welcome to the OnTick Protective Intelligence Podcast. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having us. Well, the JFK case. There are lots and lots of people that remain interested in that even today. And I can remember the assassination as a child in elementary school. And then I would later to go on to work as a protection officer with the State Department and the U.S. Secret Service. And certainly the Kennedy case changed protection forever. Why did you two decide to write this book? This is Sarah, and I grew up in California. I do not remember the Kennedy assassination. I remember Robert Kennedy's assassination. But when I was a senior in high school, I was able to study in Washington, D.C. for the American Residential Classroom for Young Americans. And by doing that, I became interested in politics. And my senior year in college, I worked for David Dreyer, who was congressman in California. And we would have many talks about the Kennedy assassination. And so my thesis was actually on the Kennedy assassination. And that's how, over the years, I have still researched because it is a murder mystery that has not been solved. Now, I, on the other hand, Fred, was old enough. I'll go ahead and give my age. I was 11 (laughs) when that happened. And I was old enough to understand uh, the impact that it made on the United States. Uh, My grandparents lived in Dallas. My grandfather was an oil man. And it wasn't until years later that I looked back and thought my grandmother did a great deal of talking about it. We called her that very afternoon and asked what's going on in Dallas, of course. And she said, well, all I can tell you is this happened during lunchtime. Uh, The secretaries were all out of the office. Our husbands were out of the office. And she said the wives of these oil men, including myself, were calling each other saying, do you know where your husband is? And she said, I say that half facetiously and half seriously because they had heard them talk about how upset they were with Kennedy. And, you know, someone said, Maybe maybe he did finally go over the edge and take his hunting rifle and go downtown. We don't know. But my grandfather, on the other hand, would never discuss the assassination. And looking back as an adult, that seems odd to me. But they did save all the local newspapers. And so I was able to compare how stories would change from day to day, week to week. 
And even at 11 years old, I remember thinking it's odd that the stories would change. You know, the interesting part, uh, Sarah and Katana, for me being a practitioner, and I know our listeners, we have many, many security officers and police officers and physical security specialists that listens to our podcast, is that when you had Eisenhower as president, there were 16 U.S. Secret Service agents. Now, in comes John F. Kennedy with Jackie Kennedy and the family, and the Secret Service went from 16 to 34 special agents, if, if memory serves me right, which is nothing compared to what's in place today for the protection of the president and, and any other visiting dignitary. So as you put this book together, looking back to the 1960s at the time that this occurred, Katana, what in your research truly surprised you? I think one of the things that was surprising is we did learn that there had been quite a number of threats on Kennedy's life from the very beginning, once he became the uh, Democratic candidate for president. And I had not even suspected that because I think the public is kept in the dark about that. Unless someone is willing to, like with President Ford, try to kill him or with President Reagan, the attempts don't make the news. And for good reason, I'm sure. But when you start doing research and find out that there were numerous attempts that were thwarted, then you realize, obviously, there were people who didn't just dislike the president. They were willing to make threats against his life. And that still continues today. Sarah, for you, what did you find that most intrigued you? Probably through our witnesses that there was an abort team and the head of the abort team was U.S. Marshal Nash. I had never heard of any such thing. The shot coming from the South Knoll, not necessarily the Grassy Knoll or the Book Depository. There are witnesses that came forward and told us things that I was pretty naive and boy, have I learned a lot. My eyes are open to different agencies, whether it's government or just other organizations that have so much power. And then how different government agencies or these organizations use plausible deniability to protect the one at the head of their organization or to protect others. And everything's on a need-to-know basis. And you first think of that with the mafia, but oh my, it is on a need-to-know basis throughout different government agencies and organizations. And Fred, another thing that surprised both of us we come from an academic background, and we encourage students to question things. You know, in the classroom, it's boring. If no one asks questions, it means you're not keeping their attention. Right. And we, we even said things like, you know, question what you read in your textbook. Don't believe every book you read. Don't believe every editorial you read. Get out there and find that there's two sides to a story. And yet, even today... This week, there was an article by uh, a Washington Post writer, George Will, in which the headline 
is called grassy knollers to have their day. And so he was making fun and comparing anyone that was uh, questioning the electoral decision as a grassy knoller. And he even included a paragraph about the Kennedy assassination and referred to anyone who believed in a conspiracy, that a conspiracy may have been involved in Kennedy's death, as demented. So we didn't realize that researchers would end up being insulted, (laughs) offended, you know, literally uh, still made fun of by people who we consider intelligent, because this is not an ignorant man. He's a very intelligent man. He just is uninformed in our far as we're concerned. Sarah, I saw this very interesting interview with the 1963 Assistant Attorney General in Texas. Yes. Tell me what he told you guys. He was sent by Wagner Carr to sit in on the testimonies that were held in Dallas for the Warren Commission. He told us that from the moment he got there, he knew that there was an agenda, that all the evidence they were given to go through was provided by the FBI. There was no other evidence that they were only looking at one assassin, not multiple assassins, that not all the people that were supposed to be there to hear the testimonies even showed up. He thought it was lackadaisical and that it was predetermined the outcome by Johnson. Now, these are his words, not our words. But he said it was already predetermined that it was Oswald, a lone shooter, and that evidence and testimonies were to match that, which is astounding. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTix Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTix Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.com. AI slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. Katana, let me ask you this. You and I were chatting a while back in preparation for our podcast, and I know from doing cold case work and, and just historical book research, how much do you think this investigation was complicated by just the era. Meaning, uh, I know when I first started as a cop and an agent, my goodness, we were dealing with three by five index cards and typewriters, and uh, we didn't even have cell phones, and literally were were going out and knocking on doors. And and I think there's a, in my assessment, there's a mental mindset for anybody today that looks back on some of these cases. And they envision a CSI kind of response team with Jack Bauer there and <laughs> FBI flooding the scene. And, you know, like we are seeing unfold in, in the uh, aftermath of this horrific incident at the U.S. Capitol. But 
this is a different time. This is a different era. So in the course of your research, what do you think about that? I think you make a very good point. Uh, Most of the people that were involved in this investigation did the very best they could. And we're very careful to say when you'll hear someone say, well, the FBI didn't even bother to give them all the evidence. That's not true for every single agent. We found memos and depositions that FBI agents had tried to get to the Warren Commission, but there were people in between that were deciding what information was to be looked at and what information wasn't. And one of those people apparently was people associated with J. Edgar Hoover. But there were other instances where people who were in official capacities changed things. And I'll give you an example. A woman who worked on the fourth floor named Victoria Adams and, her, and we visited with her, uh, a woman who had worked with her named Sandra Stiles, were one of the first to, they were watching the assassination through the fourth floor windows. When they realized something had gone wrong, they very quickly ran from window to window and then realized they couldn't see anything. And so they ran across the fourth floor. The elevator was stuck. It wasn't coming down. So they immediately ran to the only staircase available for all seven floors. And you can picture them in their skirts and their white blouses, because that's how they dressed back then, in their high heels and hose, and they're click, click, clicking, going down these stairs as fast as they can. What they didn't know is that their supervisor, Dorothy Garner, had followed them to the doors of the stairway and had stood there. So what they knew is, and Sandra Stiles verified this to me, that There was no sound of people sneaking or running down that staircase above them. There was no one in front of them who had passed them. No one followed them after they left because Dorothy Garner was standing there. And when they got to the first floor, they didn't see Oswald. They didn't see anyone. And they ran outside the back door. And yet, even though that's what Victoria Adams gave in her deposition, not long afterwards, A Dallas police officer, a detective, appeared on her doorstep and explained that somehow or another her deposition had gotten lost, misplaced, whatever, and he needed to hear her tell her story again. So she did, exactly the way she had told it before. We did not see anyone in the front hall. We saw no one on the stairs. We heard no sound of anyone moving up or down the staircase. And yet... What was sent by that Dallas police officer to the Warren report and what got published was a a record saying that she had seen two employees of the Texas School Book Depository when she reached the first floor. And it even named them William Shelley and Billy Lovelady. Now, this would seem totally unimportant, except that Billy Lovelady and William Shelley both gave evidence that they had run all the way to the grassy knoll after the assassination and were gone for several minutes before they came back into the depository. And so what this officer had done was change the timeline so that it would explain how Oswald or anyone else could have gotten down that staircase without anyone seeing them by placing them on the first floor with William Shelley and Billy Lovelady He changed the timeline to fit the official story. And that is something Victoria Adams didn't even know until someone pointed it out to her uh, later on, years later. Sarah, do you think we'll ever know the truth surrounding what took place in Dallas that day? I certainly hope so, because I believe we need to know the truth so this doesn't happen again. 
and we can prepare ourselves. If we have knowledge, then we can prepare ourselves from something like this happening again. We need to know the truth. It's time. Katana, why do you think people are still fixated on the JFK assassination today? Well, I think it's exactly what Sarah just said. A great many people believe they have not been told the truth, that they were not told the truth in the Warren report, that even the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which said there probably was a conspiracy, didn't delve deep enough into this, and that on the history books in every library, the Warren reports sits saying that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone when he killed the president November 22nd. And I think people feel like we're being told that we're not intelligent enough to hear the truth, or maybe for security reasons we couldn't handle the truth. And the truth of the matter is the American public can handle the truth. What they can handle is being lied to. Sarah, why do you think portions of the investigation are still classified? Because I believe how they organized, pre-planned, carried out, and covered up is still going on today in other areas of the United States and worldwide. And I believe if they let however they handle these maneuvers known to whether it's security nationally or security abroad, that'll compromise them. And I believe that's why they're still keeping it quiet and under national security. Well, from a protection officer's perspective, uh, I can tell you that nobody would have wanted to have been there that day. You certainly have a great sense of failure when the person you're assigned to protect is so tragically killed. And those are the kinds of things that you have to live with forever. And when you look back on this error and the transformation and protection since that day in Dallas has just been phenomenal. Certainly the U.S. Secret Service, who, who does a tremendous job of uh, protecting the president and the family and the vice president and so forth, made unbelievable changes in protection after the Kennedy assassination. Were you able to talk to any individuals that actually are still alive that worked on the Warren Commission? Well, we would talk to uh, Robert Davis, of course, uh, but he has since died. And other than that, no, I don't think we were able to. So many of them had already passed away. Uh, and then there are a few who worked on it who wrote their own versions and their own books, and we haven't been able to visit with them. So I suppose Davis would be the only one who was a surviving member of the interrogation group that we were able to visit with. Fascinating. Sarah, what do you make of uh, Jack Ruby? I believe that he was part of the mafia. He got his start in Chicago. And I believe that there came a point where he knew he had to follow orders. And the order for that day was he had to silence Oswald. We met a witness who was asked to do some things for the Dixie Mafia. 
And she did, but she always knew when they came calling, you had to do what they asked of you. And she did. And to me, the same with Ruby. Ruby knew that when they came calling, that he had to carry out what they asked him to do. Katana, did Ruby ever say anything in prison subsequent to the murder? Well, he did give a note to one of the protective officers that was in the, around the jail saying that he had been used as part of the assassination and to get rid of Oswald. And he pressed this into that man's hand uh, as he was being taken to the hospital because he was ill. So I think at times he tried to say things, but he also knew uh, how dangerous it was for him if he spoke too freely. The most incriminating piece of evidence is when he begged Chief Justice Earl Warren to please get me out of Dallas, take me to Washington, and I will speak more freely. And Warren did not do that. Sarah, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I believe there were many organizations or agencies involved. It was on a need-to-know basis, and there were just a few out of these different organizations and agencies that were involved. And that we need to know as an American public what actually happened so we can prevent it from happening again. Katana, I'll ask you the same question. Is there anything that I haven't asked that you would like to say? One thing that fascinates me still, Fred, is this is a story that I hope never dies until we reach the conclusions that we and find the truth. Because the reason we refer to it as the story that won't die is because right before Christmas, two gentlemen called me, two men that we had interviewed who had been with Oswald in the Marines. They were very appreciative that we had told their stories in the book. But one of them in particular said he is still bothered by the fact that he did not believe Oswald killed the president. The man he had known in the Marines, he said, I, I know almost as a fact, was working for the government, for military intelligence, someone, and he would not have killed the president. But what he wanted was to find out if there was a way we could put him in contact with any of Oswald's family so that he could explain to them that the man they knew in the Marines was not the man that you read about in the history books and the textbooks. And he, he says, I feel like I let him down, but not being able to go to his aid. And he said, I offered. I offered. I was a police officer, and I offered to go to Dallas and sit in on interrogations and, and maybe getting to explain who he was working for. And he said, no one wanted my was interested in what I knew, and they certainly didn't want me to go to Dallas and get involved in this investigation. So that's why I feel like if these two men are still interested in telling their stories, then this story isn't dead and buried, as so many people have told us it should be. The Lone Star Speaks, untold Texas stories about the JFK assassination published by Bancroft Press, written by Sarah Peterson and Katana Zachary. I thank you both for being on the OnTech Protective Intelligence podcast and sharing this fabulous story with us. 
Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred, very much. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.